Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last week, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled on the state's civil assets forfeiture law. It was a case in Philadelphia where a woman's home was seized because her son was selling marijuana out of the home. The woman had no knowledge of the drug sales and was not charged. The court decision was that the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office went too far in confiscating the property. Civil asset forfeiture is a tool law enforcement has used to fight drug dealing mostly and to provide funding when the seized property is sold. Taxpayers have usually seen it as a pretty good deal. Joining us on the program today to discuss uh, civil asset forfeiture is Republican State Senator Mike Fulmer of Lebanon County. Senator Fulmer, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. Also, Lebanon County District Attorney Dave Arnold. District Attorney Arnold, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at wicf.org. Dave Arnold, let me start with you. Describe how civil asset forfeiture is used? Well, uh, as a district attorney, obviously our our primary goal is is public safety, whether it comes to asset forfeiture or any other type of law enforcement aspect. Um, So that's what we use it for, use it for public safety. Uh, When you're looking at combating dangerous drug dealers, and we can all agree people that sell heroin, methamphetamine, that sort of thing, they they ruin our communities. Uh, So you can combat that really in a couple ways. One, you, you can incarcerate those offenders. Uh, that has proven that in and of itself is, is not <coughs> not controlling um, the problem. Um, and you can also do that by eliminating the, the purpose of why you would sell drugs, and that is to make money. If a drug dealer can't make money, they're not going to sell drugs. Uh, so we use this as a tool. Uh, it is not to make money for uh the Commonwealth or for the DA's office or law enforcement. Uh, that's not our goal. Our goal is to take the profit out of drug dealing so people will lose the incentive for selling drugs in the first place. And we're going to talk about something you just touched on there when you said about a, a, the, the profit motive. That has been one of the criticisms. But how important is this? I mean, I, I've read quotes from prosecutors who say that this is an essential tool in fighting crime. It is essential. Um, you know, we, we see this on a, on a routine basis where uh, people who are, are, are caught selling drugs, uh, they're more upset by, by losing their money than they are by going to jail for a period of time. Again, that's why they sell drugs is to make money. And many of these people consider going to jail a cost of doing business. Um, but if they can't make money, then, you know, again, it takes away any incentive they would have to sell drugs in the first place. All right, and we're going to talk about several of the criticisms of forfeiture, but uh, let's take one right off the top. And this is like the Young case that I referred to in the introduction. Property owned by a person not guilty of committing a crime or even unaware of it can be seized. The government being able to take someone's property who has not been convicted of crime, that, that, that's just wrong. That's what people have said. Well, that is a criticism that we hear from time to time, and I, and I think the people who are saying that don't understand the context of when these seizures are taking place. Um, for example, uh, and we see this routinely, um, a drug dealer, for example, may use uh, their girlfriend's car to, to facilitate drug sales. All right, now the girlfriend is not the one selling drugs. She's not personally involved in the drug dealing whatsoever, but she knows why her boyfriend is using her car. Um, that's a scenario where potentially the Commonwealth might be able to seize and, and, and uh, forfeit that vehicle. Okay, but one of the, the big differences there is you said the girlfriend knows Correct. why the car is being used. In this young case, for example, the mother did not know uh, that, and she was not uh, charged with a crime, that the son was selling marijuana out of her house. She was not charged, but, but my reading of the facts of the case set out in the opinion indicate that she uh, was made aware both verbally from the police officers and through the search warrants affidavit that she was provided when they searched the house the first time, she was made aware that he was selling drugs out of the house, and he continued to do, to do so afterwards. So that, that was my reading of the opinion. Uh, so what out. was she supposed to do at that point? Prevent people from selling drugs out of her house. And again, I, you know, I, I'm not 
here to, to either defend or condemn uh, what happened in that particular case. But um, my reading of the opinion is that she was absolutely aware that her son was selling drugs out of the house. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess what I'm asking, and I'm just asking the questions, I'm not yes. making any judgments either, um, that even if she was aware of it, I mean, it's not like it's a child. He was an adolescent or a child. I mean, this was an adult son. How is she supposed to stop him? I mean, she's supposed to say, listen, hit the road. I, would ar- a, I mean, that's, I, I, that's a possibility. I, yes, I would argue that, yeah. that that I would not allow someone to sell drugs out of my okay. house. I can tell you that. Okay. Um, and if it was my son or daughter or whatever selling drugs out of my house, they wouldn't be in my house any longer. I'm glad we have you on the record. You would not allow anyone to sell drugs out of your house. That's <laughs> a good you. thing for a DA. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Fulmer, how did you become involved in this? Uh, we came involved, uh, uh, got approached by a couple of national organizations on on that were advocating for civil forfeiture reforms, and um, and saw some of the I would refer to as abuses that that, that were happening. Um, we we came together and, and put together a bill, and I have to tell you, um, what we got with Senate Bill Eight was a great collaboration with the DA's association and the national forfeiture groups. And uh, we worked together to find that, that, that sweet spot, you could say, that would, number one, not hamstring, for instance, a good district attorney like Dave Arnold here, who is trying to do his job in protecting our, our society, but at the same time, making sure that citizens' protections are going to be protected. And, and what we've done was created a, a greater burden with the bill, if we get the bill to the governor's desk, and I believe he will sign it, um, and I believe we can get it to the governor's desk. We will create a greater burden of of of, of proof on this on on the state to prove that those people are doing what they're doing, and, and such. So um, that that's how we got involved, and 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 uh, hopefully we can get the, the thing done. What kind of reforms does the bill have? Well, number one, um, we, we we create a, a greater burden on on the state to prove that that individual was actually that 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 property being seized is is connected to the drugs being sold okay uh we've uh, uh which which i believe will will uh, create uh, a better protection um for instance f- uh, citizens homes won't be able to be seized immediately without a hearing uh and th- things of that nature so th- there's just greater transparency and accountability uh going forward at the same time uh it doesn't hamstring uh, the the various um, DAs to to be able to do their job and and trying to um, take the um, capitalization out of out of selling drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay, you you described it as you found a sweet spot. Yes, compromise is what you were talking sure. about. Uh, there have been criticisms though that this was not the original bill. Exactly that there has been a compromise here that, and there are those that have said that the most important part was taken out of the bill, and the most important part was that there would have to be a criminal con- conviction before a property yeah. could be seized, and then that property owner also would be provided with an attorney if. Uh, you know, just like a criminal case, but you called it a sweet spot. So you're satisfied that that part of it being taken out still has a strong bill. Well, look, I'm not an attorney, all right. So as we got into the debates on 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 what to do, of course, I'm always my job is to. Uh, I think my number one goal as a state senator is to protect people's rights. Okay, uh, we, we take an oath to file the uh, both the U.S. and Pennsylvania state constitutions. So of course I'm always going to be fighting on the, on, on on their side, but but after uh, sitting at the table and and not being an attorney and and there's 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 complications here. So the goal here, the goal never was even with the original bill was never to hamstring our law enforcement agencies from being able to do their job. The goal here was to protect citizens' rights. So yes, I'm 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 very pleased and, and matter of fact the National Association there that I've been associated with as as pushing this bill forward thinks it's a very good bill. So I, I think I think if we can get the bill to the desk, I think this will help clarify even what uh, transpired with last week's young decision. So um uh, I, I think it will and again, all parties were at the table dealing with the facts, not doing anything that's outlandish, and, and, and creating a, a um, what I think would be a good reform. Uh, from what I understand, and one thing to for background purposes, uh, that there are kind of some 
uh, odd allies in this one. Uh, <laughs> the American Civil Liberties Union and the Conservative uh, Commonwealth Foundation. And I even see the Koch brothers have uh, come out, have formed uh, you know, a national group that uh, has been critical of some of the uh, civil a- asset forfeiture laws. The ACLU has come out. I'm not sure about the Commonwealth Foundation, but the ACLU has come out and said they're not satisfied. They can't support the reform bill. Well, that's because we didn't get post-conviction. And and it, they don't think it goes far enough, and I'm saying uh, that this is a great this is a great step forward in in bringing and creating and because again the goal here was was this it, in our justice system if I am convicted of a crime I am presumed innocent until proven guilty we created in this bill we've created great greater burden on the state to prove that I I don't have to prove myself innocent anymore any longer. I, they have to prove that I'm guilty. So I think we've we we've achieved something with this bill, that 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 uh, it's it's definitely better than the status quo. So if you're if you're opposed to this bill, then you're telling me that the status quo is good. So I mean we've we've done a nice job. And again, the goal here was to get all parties at the table. And again, I'm going to reemphasize this: this was never, I as the prime sponsor of the bill. This was never, ever, the, the case was never to hamstring our law enforcement agencies. The goal here was to protect citizens. Rights. Well, and, I, and I, I don't think anyone would do that. I mean, as I said in the introduction, when law enforcement first started using civil asset, asset forfeiture, I mean, it was universally held up as, oh, this is a great idea, because it wouldn't mean as much taxpayer money being used to to fight crime. It would provide some resources. But when you hear cases like the Young case, where a woman loses her home when she's not convicted of a crime, that's when people see, uh, you know, start to make some criticisms. Let's uh, take a phone call here from Heather in Harrisburg. Heather, you're on the air. Hi. um, my, My comment is that in many of these cases, when you're dealing with somebody who's dealing drugs or in those types of situations, the the, wo- the woman is most likely dealing with some sort of abuse, and they're ill-equipped to take those kinds of strong stances where, well, I just wouldn't let somebody do that in my home. Um, they're trying to survive. And for them to lose everything, even though they're maybe aware, uh, I just think it's wrong. And my other point is that we should take that money and put it towards education and rehabs and, you know, abuse um, victim advocate groups and, you know, get people on the right track through, you know, mentoring and that sort of thing. So that's that's my point. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your comment. Uh, She does have two different things. And uh, Dave Arnold, what she's describing with uh, a woman in an abusive situation Mitigating circumstances, basically, is what that is, is that uh, there would be a woman that is being forced to stay in an abusive situation and uh, do some things that she may not, she may know are illegal, but she's afraid to do anything about it. Uh, Is there any... Longitude, any any kind of latitude, I should say, for uh, for uh, mitigating circumstances like that. Well, I think there absolutely is, and I, I think there always has been. And, and again, Senator Fulmer's bill even takes that a little bit further into making sure that people are protected. Um, look, we don't have any interest in, in taking property from people who who are innocent. Uh, of, of committing crime or, or who are the victims of abuse and, and that sort of situation. Our goal is, as I stated in the beginning, is we want to combat drug dealers and, and try to de-incentivize selling drugs. And one of the ways to do that is to take their property. So, um, you know, if there's a woman who's an innocent uh, party, she's a, a victim of abuse or whatever the case may be, uh, we certainly would have no desire in, in seeking any kind of forfeiture against that person. I would think that that would be difficult to prove, though that uh, a woman would say, listen, I knew about it, but he was going to beat me up if I, or there was a potential of being, uh, you know, physically harmed if I went, if I didn't go along with it. I, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. And, and the reason I say that is a, a lot of our forfeitures come from investigations by our drug task force. Um, our, our task force, I think they're our top notch as good as they get. And they're very thorough. Um, for example, our last significant, uh, drug raid about a year or so ago wound up being prosecuted federally just convicted a couple weeks back um it lasted about a year so our detectives they truly do know the ins and outs of the people they're dealing with um 
and we treat them fairly. So if a detective says, look, you know, here, here's a circumstance, you know, they were using this, this woman's home, but, but, you know, she really wasn't involved and, and she, she was subject to abuse from him. That absolutely gets considered by us, and, and, and we wouldn't seek forfeiture against that kind of a person. I want to address uh, her second part of her question in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk in, on, on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org. Our guest today are Republican State Senator Mike Fulmer of Lebanon County and Lebanon County District Attorney Dave Arnold. We're talking about civil asset forfeiture. There was a Supreme Court ruling, Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling last week that said the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office went too far when they seized a woman's house. Her son was selling marijuana out of that home. Uh, If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or comment on WITF. WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. I want to address the second part of uh, Heather's comment. She was advocating that the money seized go into, well, she said about, uh, you know, some drug enforcement programs, but she also suggested maybe what would be considered the general fund. How is that money used now? The, the money is used in a number of ways, uh, all of which relate back to, to either drug enforcement, drug education, uh, drug training, that sort of thing. For example, we, you know, the funds could be used for, for education uh, about, about drug use and drug abuse. It could be used for uh, naloxone, for example, to purchase naloxone for, for first responders to try to save lives of, of, of heroin overdose uh, victims. Um, of course, we also use it for law enforcement, police departments, uh, um, equipment, that sort of thing. So um, it's a wide variety of areas, uh, again, all of which are related to either drug enforcement or drug education, drug resistance, that sort of thing. But it doesn't go into the general fund. Correct. Senator, any ever any thought, maybe when you were coming up with your legislation about uh, putting it back into the general fund? There's always that no, thought. I figured there would be, yeah. <laughs> um, but again, as you go th- with any bill, with any uh, uh, policy that you're developing, there's an educational process as you're going through it. And um, my goal as I put together any piece of legislation is to deal with the facts and deal with all the information because I don't know all things. And and so you always have to keep an open ear to, to both sides of, of, of the argument. Our goal in the end uh, of it all was just to make sure there was greater, and the bill does this, by the way, Senate Bill 8 would do this, create a, 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 a improved transparency and in the auditing and also on, on the reporting level, both the county and state level. So as, as uh, District Attorney Arnold alluded to, as he puts these monies in, that will all be verified and, and so forth. Uh, and and that's really what the goal was. Right. Here's another criticism, and uh, Dave Arnold touched on this uh, earlier in the program, that there was a conflict of interest because the district attorneys, police departments and district attorneys, uh, that there's a financial incentive for them to do this because they get to keep the money if the property is seized and it's sold, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a windfall there, that it that there is a conflict of interest because there is that incentive. What do you say to that? Well, I think that there could be. I said, um, and as I first did the bill, uh, that was one of the uh, concerns that that the the various national organizations had concerns with, that we were possibly turning our law enforcement enforcement agencies into money-generating machines. Uh, that wasn't, I believe, the goal of our founding fathers when they put together our Constitution. Uh, it was basically to keep the peace and, and so forth and, and, and making sure that people's uh, rights were protected and such. But as we've gone through all this, like I said, uh, Senate Bill 8 uh, addresses that, I think, in a, in a very clarifying way, that, that I think it takes that 
that that that, that would, it takes that incentive away in a sense. If there are if there are abusing DAs out there, you know that that were that that were using it for the wrong reasons or or using it purely for, I, I think what we've done with Senate Bill Eight creates a a a a. a Make sure that the money's going to where it's supposed to be going. But who makes that decision that a DA has been abusing it? I mean, obviously, in a case like this, I mean, I don't think that the the court used the the terminology went too far, but that was the gist of 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 the ruling was the Philadelphia DA went too far with that case. Well, I think uh, in in that case, because of the status quo, uh, because there are no uh, burdens of of of, of proof and, and so forth. Uh, they, they made that decision. I think Senate Bill 8, if we have it in, in the law, working together with the recent Supreme Court decision, would do a better job in protecting citizens' rights and, and also keeping our society safe. But again, I go back to my original question. Who makes that decision? Well, that's a great question. Um, and, and that's going to be on, on the burden of each uh, uh, uh are you referring to the fact is would well, that a DA has gone too far and has abused it? Well, that's always going to be in the hands of the courts if 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 they ever get that far. That that's for sure. But I think Senate Bill Eight, and, and forgive me for misunderstanding your question. Mm. Um, I, I think what we're trying to do here uh, with Senate Bill Eight is to try to clarify that. That I think I think with the way Senate Bill Eight is constructed, we we are creating a, a greater burden. Of proof on the state, which then would 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 help uh, with that whole scenario. Mm-hmm. And I can, if I if I can just add sure. on, if you don't mind. Oh no, because, I, I don't mind at all. I was coming to you next because <laughs> because, because there's this misconception out there that that DAs just sit around and say, okay, go go take that guy's property, and we're going to sit in our office and count cash all day long. And that's just not how it works. There there are substantial checks and balances in place with the system, which are enhanced even further by this by the by the bill that Senator Fulmer has put together. Which includes uh, more transparent and detailed reporting re- being required by the DAs. Uh, it sets forth very specific limitations on on uh, how money can be spent. Um, but you need to consider first of all the, the 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 processes it has to go through for something to be seized and forfeited. Ultimately, first the police would seize it. Then it goes before the DA, who decides whether or not this is a valid, in our mind, valid seizure or not. Again, we're not the final arbiter of that. Um, but assuming the DA agrees to move forward with that, then it goes in front of your common pleas judge. Um, uh, and as we saw, it can go to the Commonwealth Court and all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. In addition, each county has a controller who does a, an audit of our accounts every year to make sure that our, our bookkeeping is accurate and, and appropriate under the law. Um, and finally, we have to do reports with the Attorney General's office yearly. So, uh, And they then review what we've done with the, the account and making sure that it's all legitimately handled and that sort of thing. So it goes through a pretty a pretty uh, substantial process to make sure that we're doing the right things uh, with, with the seizures. Are there DAs, and I know you probably are hesitant to criticize colleagues, but are there prosecutors out there who have abused the situation? The system, I should say. I, I don't know the answer to that. What I'll say is this. Over the course of the time that this statute has existed, there's probably been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of seizures that have occurred in Pennsylvania. We've been pointed to a handful that, that maybe they weren't done right, maybe they were overambitious, um, maybe they were too aggressive, whatever terminology you want to give to it. Um, but the reality is if we've done thousands and thousands of seizures and a handful of them weren't, weren't up to par where they should be, Instead of throwing out the whole system, in my mind, you do what Senator Fulmer did, which is bring the groups together. How can we make this system even better? It's already a good system because we've only had a handful of, of things done improperly out of many thousands. How can we make that better? And I think Senator Fulmer has done that with his bill. Dave, I did want to get back to you, though, with the question that I asked Senator Fulmer earlier about uh, the part of the bill that was taken out about uh, that would have required a conviction before anything could be seized or, you know, the property sold. Yes, you know, there are probably people looking at that and says, well, that seems reasonable. I mean, because that goes to the point of that you're presumed innocent until, you know, there was mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, there was a conviction. Why oppose that? Well, I agree. I think on the surface, it looks reasonable. Once you work in this field on a daily basis, you realize there are circumstances where that's not a tenable position to have. When you when you put absolute terms into to any bill, always, never you know, that sort of thing, then you take away any possible flexibility that you might need. And from time to time, you need to have a little bit of flexibility there. For example, um, I can think of one forfeiture we did in Lebanon County where we didn't have a conviction 
two years ago, I believe it was. Um, and the, the circumstances were that the person we arrested seized his property. He ultimately wound up uh, providing information for our task force. In the end, uh, we agreed that, that based upon the work he did for us, that we would wind up um, uh, not convicting him of anything. Um, okay, well, under your scenario, we wouldn't be able to seize his property then. But he was selling drugs. He admitted he was selling drugs. I mean, you know what I mean? So, um, and there's a myriad of cases I could point out. Uh, you know, we, we have a, a, a case where we arrest somebody for selling drugs, and our main witness maybe passes away or is unavailable come trial time. Well, there's overwhelming evidence this person was selling drugs, but due to his benefit of us no longer having that witness available, now he no longer is, is subject to conviction or forfeiture. You said about absolutes, yes. but the Constitution's pretty absolute uh, when it says innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. No, I just point that out. So. Well, well, and again, <laughs> but there's also different standards for, for actions against property versus actions against people, and the Constitution separates those things as well. Okay. Well, and, and, and to Dave's credit, I mean, uh, District Attorney, I'm sorry, no, Arnold, <laughs> to, to his credit, uh, the, again, the whole goal as the prime sponsor of this bill was never to hamstring our, our, our law enforcement agencies as they're trying to do their job. The goal here was to create what I saw a, a greater need to create a greater burden on the part of the government. In other words, in, in a sense, Senate Bill 8 does that because no longer do I have to prove that I'm innocent. Like, no, that really wasn't me and, and so forth. Now they have to prove that I was part of that. Now they're going to have to prove all those things. Okay, maybe we didn't get post-conviction. Maybe we didn't get that that, that terminology. But working together with the DA's association and, and national forfeiture groups, we, we came to that part where we said, okay, we've achieved what the goal was. And and was and like like and, and I think you made a great point. We didn't throw the the baby out with the bathwater here. The goal here was to just tighten things up and we could have better accountability. We have better uh uh uh, uh property uh uh rights and, and so forth in this bill and, and, and I think we've achieved that. Let's take a phone call from Ryan in Camp Hill. Ryan, you're on the air. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I really appreciated hearing this conversation. I just reflect back to something I heard a few weeks ago on the radio, which was interesting about collective punishment. As a country, we don't believe that that is uh, a good response to something. So a, a terrorist, whether domestically or internationally, commits a crime, we don't kill their family. Uh, you know, we're seeing now that bin Laden's son rise to lead al-Qaeda. Well, we didn't go after his children when he committed atrocities. And so when I think in our own community of the drug addictions we're suffering right now, and parents and grandparents taking in folks who really are dealing with a significant struggle and may in fact be engaging in this type of activity, are we approaching this area of collective impact by taking innocent people who are trying to do the best they can for their family with all they have? Ryan, thank you very much for your call, Dave. I don't believe it's what we're doing. Um, you know, I don't think we're 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 doing collective punishment. I think again, it gets back to what can we do to to impede drug dealing and make our communities safer. That's ultimately the goal that we that we all have here. Quite frankly, uh, is to make our communities safer. And un, indisputably, indisputably, people sell drugs to make money. And if you can impact their ability to make and keep money, you can impact their ability uh, or their desire to sell drugs. That's that's the bottom line to this. And I know, Senator, you've uh, addressed this several times. Uh, Dave and Lancaster ask, my question is regarding the seizure of assets in regard to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Doesn't this bill still violate the Fourth Amendment? That's equal I, protection under the law. I, I don't think so. I, I think what we've achieved with the bill is is that we've created... Uh, uh, again, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but we created a, a greater burden on the state to prove that those those uh, 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 assets, property, or whatever, were t- actually tied to the the drug sales. So uh, I, I believe this bill uh, definitely is better than the status quo. Um, we cannot have these discussions as we go forward down the road. But I think in the end, I think we've created a, a, a place where, where we can continue allowing uh, uh, and, 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 and 
hoping that that our DAs and so forth are able to do their job to the best of their ability, and at the same token, creating that greater burden of proof. I mean, that's that's really what it's all about. I mean, I no longer, you know, we're not the European system where I got to prove myself innocent. Now they're going to have to prove me guilty, mm-hmm. and this bill achieves that. We have another question here, uh, and. This is, you know, and maybe we're going from, we've been talking a lot about uh, drug dealing, uh, but uh, Melanie asked, why not acquire or require civil assets for child endangerment, abuse, domestic violence? Isn't it uh, pro-social to de-incentivize these criminals by bringing them out of the shadows of their physical residences? Do you use it in other crimes? Uh, there are occasions, and again, this this specific statute is about, about drug asset mm-hmm. forfeiture. It was created... Uh, you know, back in the, the I, I don't recall what year, but you know, during the probably the heyday of the war on on drugs, uh, so to speak, there are there are occasions where we have the ability statutorily to seize property uh, uh, in other areas. Um, we we do that again from time to time. Um, should that be expanded, I suppose that's a debate that that would be worthy of having. Um, but but it's um, there's not statutes that are quite as explicit as as the one we're talking about here today. How much money did you bring in? Last year, or or do you typically bring it in depends. County? It, it depends. I would say an average year is probably twenty thousand dollars, maybe. Um, we've had some outliers, for example, we had uh, a place called Bad Boy Toys that was selling uh, uh, bath salts and synthetic marijuana to the tune of about a quarter million dollars a month. Um, we sub- we seized substantial assets from them, um, rightfully so, and uh, they've they're in state prison currently, in addition. Um, but your average year, it's it's usually in the twenty thousand dollar range, I'd say. Now that's in in Lebanon County. Obviously, yes. some of the bigger counties uh, probably right. have more. Uh, Senator, you mentioned that uh, Governor Wolf, you're, it's awaiting his signature. Has he indicated where he's going to go on this? N- not not with me personally. I, I I but like I said, I I, I believe we've done a really nice job. We got everybody to the table, which I think Americans would love. The fact that we've had two opposing groups working together, coming to a place where we now have have found that, I believe, significant changes that would help uh, create a a greater balance here and without hurting the the DAs from being able to do their job uh, and and such. So I I believe he'll sign the bill. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much. Uh, Republican State Senator Mike Farmer of Lebanon County and Lebanon County District Attorney Dave Arnold, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And stay tuned because we have some breaking news that is significant here in uh, central Pennsylvania coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. All right, some breaking news. The owner of Three Mile Island, site of the United States' worst commercial nuclear power accident, says it will shut down the plant in 2019 without a financial rescue from the state of Pennsylvania. Exelon Corporation says the announcement comes after five years of losses on the power plant in Dauphin County and its recent failure in an auction to sell TMI's power into the regional grid. The Chicago-based energy company wants the Commonwealth to give nuclear power megawatts the kind of preferential treatment and premium payments that are given to renewable energy such as wind and solar. Nuclear power plants have been hammered by the natural gas boom that has slashed electricity prices in competitive markets. So the announcement is that uh, Three Mile Island will be shut down in 2019 unless the state comes to the rescue. President Trump's proposed budget and terms of the Republican-supported American Health Care Act have left many low-income Pennsylvanians worried about health care insurance. Under the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, some 700,000 got their insurance through Medicaid. That was on top of the 2.3 million who already had Medicaid. Under proposed uh, AH, uh, AH, or AHCA, the state share of paying for Medicaid would increase 382%. Joining us is WITF's Transforming Health reporter, Ben Allen. Ben, thank you very much for joining us today. Good to be with you here, Scott. All right, so where do we start with this? So Medicaid is the single largest uh, source of federal funds for Pennsylvania. And what does Medicaid do? Medicaid covers a lot of different things. It covers people who are low income, but that's kind of the headline. Often we think Medicaid covers people with low income, and that's it. Medicaid covers people with disabilities, 
lots of uh, children with disabilities. It also pays for, and this is something that, frankly, I learned that I didn't really think of, about 20% of spending in Medicaid pays for long-term care, more than $9 billion in Pennsylvania from the Medicaid program went to long-term care in recent years. That's top four in spending in the country. So it is a huge, massive program. Well, let me just interrupt you for that. Yeah. So that, that long-term care that you're talking about is you're talking about people who are in nursing uh, exactly. homes, yep. uh, I don't yep. know if assisted living, if that counts or not. Yep. But uh, with the rates, the fees that uh, many people pay with these facilities, they just cannot afford it even with insurance uh, or their, their savings. Social Security definitely doesn't cover it. So almost, I don't know what the percentage is, but a high percentage of people who are living in those facilities getting care are doing it through Medicaid, right? Right. It's it certainly, there, there are people who are known as dual eligibles. They're both Medicare and Medicaid eligible. And, uh, you know, obviously that's a, a large percentage here. No, again, $9 billion in spending in Pennsylvania in the most recent year um, from the Medicaid program for long-term care alone. Just to give you a sense of the scope here, Scott, Medicaid in 2015 in Pennsylvania, it was about... Uh, in just Medicaid spending, about $25 billion. So about $25 billion spent to cover a little bit less, uh, maybe about 2.5 million people at that point in 2015. So uh, again, a massive, massive program that touches so many people here in Pennsylvania. And now we've got to talk about what the, what the potential changes might be. All right. So let's talk about those potential changes. So Senator Pat Toomey is part of the group that that is negotiating uh, these changes for Medicaid. And I talked to them uh, about a week ago, um, and uh, Senator Toomey has kind of made it, it clear that he wants to see um, the the state pick up more of the costs of Medicaid. So under the, the current Medicaid setup, most, uh, most of the people in Medicaid, uh, the state pays about 45 cents on the dollar for their care. But if they were enrolled in this expansion population under the Affordable Care Act, the state pays about 10 cents on the dollar, 10, 11, 12, or excuse me, 10, sometimes 8 cents on the dollar. So um, Pat Toomey wants it to go up to 45 cents for everybody. On the surface, that sounds like, you know, that that that, that makes sense. Um, what there is some concern here in Pennsylvania is that that would be a enormous um burden for the state. These are, uh, you know, that would be 700,000 people-ish, maybe a little bit less. And a, a Republican U.S. senator did this analysis. A Republican U.S. senator, Bill Cassidy, he did an estimate for every state in his office. And for Pennsylvania, the cost of the Medicaid expansion would go from $448 million a year to $2.16 billion a year. And in a state where there's a budget deficit of a billion or so dollars, you're going to say, where does that money come from? And the state can't borrow money. They can't. You need to have a balanced budget on paper every year. It's a 382% increase, as we were talking about. So the fear is, from advocates, Scott, the fear is that the state will, won't be able to cover that, and people will lose coverage. Um, it, they may not change the eligibility rules, which is kind of something that Republicans have said. They've said, oh, well, the eligibility won't change. And that's true. The eligibility may not change. But what will change is the funding. And when there's only so much funding to go around, there are going to be people that are going to be left behind, maybe in you know, a waiting list, maybe uh, you know, different strategies. Uh, we could even talk about perhaps rationing care. Uh, these, these are all very real possibilities if, um, if the funding isn't there. What's driving this? Because, I mean, we've, we've known since day one that this debate started during the Obama administration that Republicans opposed it. Once Obamacare became law, uh, they continued to say that, uh, you know, it's not working, it's collapsing. It's it, you know, right. Then they point to premiums, the way the premiums have gone up over the last few years. But 
what's driving this? Something just taking a step backwards we should mention is that under Obamacare, that the federal government reimbursed states the first few years 100 percent for Medicaid, and then it was 90 percent, correct? It's going down to 90 percent by 2020. Right. 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 And this was at the time, I remember people in Pennsylvania saying, well, what concerns me is that the federal government pulls the rug out from under us. Exactly. And that's what they probably see. Exactly. What's going on right now. So that gets back to my original question. I mean, obviously, cost savings is one thing, but to just pass it on to the states, who's saving money then? Right. So I asked uh, Senator Toomey that exact question. I said, why do you want to do this? What's the rationale? And he said, hey, this is a unsustainable path financially for the federal government to pay this consistently. And he said that the choice is either to cover these costs uh, for the federal government or he said this could lead, a, could lead the United States to a path of bankruptcy. Those were his words. Um, now, the Congressional Budget Office uh, did an analysis of um, this American Health Care Act. And um, the American Health Care Act uh, w- would cut those those Medicaid uh, dollars by about eight hundred thirty four billion dollars over ten years. It also, uh, in that same act, uh, would cut taxes by about six hundred sixty four billion dollars over ten years. So, I have a question, New Senator Toomey's office. I actually just sent it this morning. Um, if it's unsustainable to spend this money on Medicaid, is it unsustainable to cut taxes by $664 billion over 10 years? So we'll, we'll see what the answer is. Um, but I think that if, we're gonna ha- if there's going to be a real debate about this, you have to have that conversation. Uh, you can't, um, and I'm, I'm not going to let, as a reporter... I'm not going to let politicians tell me that one kind of spending is unsustainable uh, when it involves health, but tax cuts are sustainable if uh, if the, if they if they fit with their uh, fit with their principles, fit, fit with their thoughts. Well, you know what the part of the comeback. I, mean, I say you know. I, yeah. I, I can anticipate that part of it is going to be the reason for tax cuts in the first place is that uh, that the economy will grow. And that uh, that money will be made up for in the economy, but that's 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 a whole other. Sure, that's an argument that, that certainly can be made. Um, but um, I think that you know it's important to lay all the cards on the table. And the the fact is that Medicaid over the next ten years under the American Health Care Act would be cut by eight hundred thirty four billion dollars, and uh, much of those cuts would be offset by a tax cut that primarily benefits wealthier Americans. Candidate Trump and now President Trump yep. said uh, on the campaign trail and actually after he took office that no one would lose coverage. And it sounds as if a lot of people would lose coverage if uh, the rules are changed. Right. I, I don't understand. Uh, you know, I don't understand. Um, there, there's a, 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 a vast dichotomy uh, between what... Um, the the candidate Trump and uh, and President Donald Trump has said regarding health care. I mean, just the latest uh, tweet that he said uh, that he that he tweeted out on Sunday night saying that uh, you need to pour more money into health care um, and uh, the bill that he has celebrated and gotten behind this American Health Care Act takes money from health care. So. It's. It, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, do a psychological analysis on AR here, but um, they're just the facts just don't line up um, in terms of uh, the spending. In terms of how many people could uh, lose coverage, you know, the Congressional Budget Office does the best that they can. Um, this is a nonpartisan group that's kind of the researchers uh, for uh, for the federal government for Congress, but um, you know they. They, they estimate that 23 million people would uh, go without coverage, uh, insurance coverage, over the next 10 years. It's, it's a slow process. Um, you know, not everybody would lose uh, coverage right away. And I should, I should make it clear, Scott, uh, when we talk about Medicaid, from now until 2020, nothing will change if 
even if the American Health Care Act goes into effect, there will be no change in the funding structure for Medicaid. The real changes happen in 2020. That's when the federal share was supposed to go to 90 percent and the state was supposed to pick up 10 percent. And in talking with, with state leaders, they say, yeah, we've been preparing for that. We're ready for that. That's what we've been preparing for. But if that if that um, if the American Health Care Act goes into effect and uh, the state share or the federal share goes to uh, 60 percent, let's say, instead of uh, 90 percent. I mean, that that's where the, the problems arise. That's where it becomes a one point five, one point six, one point seven billion dollar bill for the states to keep people on Medicaid or for Pennsylvania to keep people on Medicaid. And one thing that I do want to bring up, because I think that this is important, we, we talked about the long-term care, we, we can talk about uh, the opioid care, but it, frankly, it, it, really, it really spoke to the impact of this program. Um, I got two emails from people. I'll be honest, I don't get a whole lot of unsolicited emails. You get a whole lot of unsolicited emails because you're Scott Lamar. I don't get a whole lot of unsolicited emails. Well, usually it's people who have ideas for shows. Yes, um, but I don't get a whole lot of unsolicited emails from, from regular people. And I got two from two mothers in just in the past week um, imploring me to talk more about uh, the effect that this has on, on people with disabilities. Uh, one of these mothers, um, her children have, have Noonan syndrome. They see four specialists annually. One of the drugs for one of her children has an $800 a month prescription copay, and this is covered in large part by Medicaid. Um, if if uh, she, she is fearful that if these changes are made, uh, her children will be some of the first kicked off because they make more than the usual Medicaid population makes. So she says if, if these cuts go into effect and her children uh, can't get access to the kinds of services they need, they'll be bankrupt within a year. Um, and, and, you know, that's important to talk about because when I did ask Senator Pat Toomey about, you know, who's responsible here— he he said it shouldn't be the federal government's responsibility to pay for to pay for this this newly eligible population. He said it should be the state's responsibility, um, and you can let that stand on its own. He said if the state thinks that it's worth it to cover uh, these people, uh, to cover these newly eligible people, um, then they should they should cover the cost. Uh, and, and and pay that one point five, one point six, one point seven billion dollars a year in addition to what they already pay. Um, we can talk about the federal and state role of of, of budgeting, but I want to make it clear that's that is what Senator Toomey has said in terms of um, why why he he is is advocating reducing the federal share. He says it's a state responsibility, and. Um, and that you know, uh, and and that the state should stand up. Well, the reality is, is that Pennsylvania is not alone in having a tight budget. Exactly. I mean, right. um, probably forty-three other states are in similar situations. Some worse, some better. Yep. Than than Pennsylvania. Uh, so, so the bottom line is, probably most of those states are going to. I mean, if, if this comes to be, we'll try to find some way to cover it. But they just won't be able to do it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that um, it's hard to make the numbers work. And right. That's the difference between state budgeting and federal budgeting. For a state, you have to have a balanced budget right. on paper. No deficits. For, for, uh, for the federal government, you can rack up deficits. You can have that discussion about whether it's wise to to rack up deficits. Whether um, you know there there are reasons, are things that are more worth a deficit spending versus other things that are not worth deficit spending. Um, but um, that that's that's the reality in this situation. Now, to be clear, the American Health Care Act helps some people. People, frankly, like me. If I didn't work at WITF and did not have company-provided health care, I would be shopping at healthcare.gov. I'm a relatively healthy person. I 
right now I probably would pay more in insurance than I would consume in health care services. Under the American Health Care Act, my costs would very likely go down. I would be a beneficiary. Older people would pay more um, under the American Health Care Act because of how the tax subsidies are going to be changing or would be changing under the HCA and uh, and um, different different uh, ratios in terms of how they would actually calculate premiums. But um, there are people that, that will benefit uh, under the AHCA, and I'm sure um, you know that that discussion will happen over over the next uh, you know months. Um, what 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 I did want to highlight here, though, Scott, with you on Smart Talk was just one piece of this, which is the Medicaid piece, and um, it is by far the biggest change that would happen under this. Uh, AHCA, and it's the the change that would affect the most people. And so, uh, you know, that, I, I just want to say that so people say, you know, in case people come out and say, oh, you didn't cover this, you didn't cover that. Today, we're talking about Medicaid. Maybe next week, we'll talk about something else. We have about 90 seconds left, Ben, and you uh, mentioned opioids, and I do want to um, talk about that a little bit. Obviously, Pennsylvania and the country, every state in the country has an opioid problem. Right. What would this do to that? So there's some concern because about 63,000 people used Medicaid coverage to access opioid treatment in 2015. That could be, you know, counseling. That could be actual medication-assisted treatment. That could be stays in, in a facility. That could be detoxification and and all those people uh, who use that service, they would be affected just like any anybody else. And would they be able to get the services that they need um, going forward? Well, you'll you know it'll depend on how the AHCA plays out. Does this get through the Senate? How does it look when it gets through the Senate? And how would Pennsylvania handle things come 2020? Would you know, there'd be some economic boom and the state be able to pay that $1.8, $1.9 billion uh, for Medicaid, maybe. Or would they start to say, hey, this population will particularly focus on and the others will uh, will let go. Ben Allen is WITF's Transforming Health reporter. Ben, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Scott. Uh, Transforming Health is an initiative that is supported by Penn State Health and also by Wellspan Health. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, a report on how students in rural school districts will be impacted or are impacted, I should say, by uh, spending, education spending. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine.